This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new chairman for the NTSB. And we're going to introduce you to a new acronym called AFTA. Also, pilots, beware, your records are now on display. And we're going to learn why Glass Air paused operations. Finally, we'll dig into the first quarter gamma numbers. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Paul Seibert. Paul is, you know, we always have to, I feel bad making this disclaimer, but Paul is not a pilot. However, I give him a ton of credit because he trusts pilots to do his job, which is aerial photography. He relies on aviation to do his job, as you said. And Paul is a native New Yorker. He has a unique look at New York City. And Ian, one thing we need to let our listeners know is for them to take a look in their mailbox for the July pilot, where Paul's portfolio will be on full display, and they are gorgeous photos. He tells us all about them. Yeah, so you guys get to nerd out a little bit later, photographer to photographer. So Yay! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And David, before we get to the news, I want to talk a little bit about your instrument training. You keep chugging along. How's it going? It's going great, Ian, but something unusual happened last night while I was trying to do some simulator work over here at AOPA headquarters. I got a call from my good buddy, Kayla McLeod. You will remember she has been on Hangar Talk before. She's a young pilot and helped organize the young pilots uh, fly-in quite some time ago. And, and Triple Tree Aerodrome's Ben Templeton, who's flying around the country in a Piper Cub, was looking for a little help here in the Frederick area. He got turned away from spending the night at Winchester in Virginia and so uh, I heard from Kayla. I had to discontinue my flight lesson. We're, we're pilots, Ian. We're helping each other out. I figured out that, uh, that we could get young Ben over here at uh, the Frederick Airport. I have a, a couch in the Westminster Aerobats hangar that was currently available. Yeah, so we threw open the door to Ben Templeton. He spent the night on the couch at the, at the airport in the hangar. Uh, as Piper Cub was tied down out here out front, 
And before you know it, my flight instructor, Keith West, volunteered to take young Ben out to dinner. Hmm. So he grabbed a quick bite, and former AOPA ambassador Les Smith saw Ben at the airport, made the connection that they had met each other at Triple Tree Airport in Woodruff, South Carolina, and told Ben that Les was going to take him to breakfast this morning. Nice. So Nice. So, you know, out of lemons, we made lemonade. Very cool. Yeah, we turned Ben on to a place to stay, some food. And he was on his way this morning, Ian. He's flying around the country. He's touching down in all 48 states, all the way from South Carolina up the northeast coast to California and back in a historical Piper Cub and it's all about STEM aviation. He's spreading the word. He's getting young aviators involved, and we wish him all the best. And, Ian, thank you for reminding me about that. Yeah, so where was he headed after Frederick? Up to Pennsylvania, I Yeah. Assume. Or maybe over to Delaware. You're right, both, actually, uh, touching uh, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and ultimately up uh, the coast towards Maine. He's going to fly the New York Corridor today as we record the podcast. And, listen, folks could find Ben on, uh, on the Internet, Ben Flies dot com b-e-n-f-l-i-e-s dot com and also on his facebook and instagram pages which are simply his first and last name ben templeton and he's 18 years old ian he graduated actually his high school class graduated yesterday hmm. and he was already in the air from south carolina to to virginia and uh and central maryland and he does want to be a career pilot. He's got plans to attend middle georgia state university as which is an aviation school and it, I think it's going to be a really cool trip. I think it already started out with some memories, Ian, that yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll have a hard time trying to forget being turned out from one of our sister airports. But we, we rolled out the carpet, and, you know, that's what pilots do. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. It's a neat way to finish a lesson. Yeah, so. it is. <laughs> hey, l- let's, uh, let's get started with the news. NTSB Chairman uh, Bob Sumwall who uh, is a, speaking of uh, professional pilot, was a professional pilot before stepping into the NTSB and has served as chairman, very well-respected guy. He is stepping down. He is stepping down. Ian, you know, as you'll recall, you know, these are appointments, and they last for a couple of years in a row. And, you know, he, like you mentioned, one thing that let Robert into that position was, was his position with U.S. Airways, where he took on a special assignment as the Flight Safety Department and served in the airline's flight operational quality assurance monitoring team. And then uh, basically he had this, this incredible flying background, you know, 32 years, including 24 years with Piedmont Airlines and U.S. Airways. So really, Bob is a pilot's pilot. Yeah, absolutely. But again, things change in Washington, D.C., and, and someone new will be filling his shoes. Yeah, so the expected appointment is going to be Jennifer Hamandy. And I think this, this says a lot about kind of where transportation safety is right now in that she is a railroad and pipeline safety expert, so not an aviation expert. And I think that that's great because it shows that aviation is doing really well. And that maybe railroad and pipeline needs a little bit more attention, a little bit more focus. Oh, I didn't even think of that, Ian. But you're right. You know, the NTSB's top 10 list, which we've been on that list, unfortunately, for Mm -hmm. a number of years because of 
you know, uh, control flight into terrain yeah. accidents. Yep. We've we've done better with that, Ian, within the last few years when we've had a little bit better cockpit uh, availability of electronic instruments. We have, you know, we have uh, radar that we could rely on now um, for weather a little bit more. We have synthetic vision. There are a lot more tools that we have, so maybe we're dropping off of that map. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all good news. Hey, want to move on? We I don't think I've talked about this on the show yet, but it, it's been a huge initiative here at AOPA and the You Can Fly department, and something that's been in development for many years. It's called AFTA. This is the Flight Training Advantage, and to make a long story short, it's basically an app that we think is going to really help students through the flight training process. And that's what we're talking about today. We're, we're going to let folks know the new acronym AFTA. A F T A. So it does stand for the AOPA Flight Training Advantage Program. And, Ian, I've seen it in action uh, at the Redbird gathering a couple of years ago. We had a demonstration of that. It's uh, via via iPad. Instructors like yourself will be able to check us off as our students go through different phases of flight and provide a, an up-to-date experience on what the student has done well or needs to work on more. And it's instead of scribbling it down on a notepad, and, you know, that's hard to do when you're uh, instructing in a cockpit. This is real easy to just touch the screen, check things off, and you can grade students in a certain way that is constructive criticism and help save money by not going over the same concepts or skills over and over. Yeah, and this, you know, this I think is a, is a good idea, and it struck me from the beginning because I remember first starting out in a 141 program with a private pilot training, and you know, it was, this is, you know, way back, whoa, in the late nineties that we used the Jeppesen syllabus. And it was of course on this like massive trifold folder and all the lessons were, you know, planned out and they had all the maneuvers kind of, I think down the left side, maybe in the lessons across the top. And the instructor had to go every time and cross off. Okay. We did this, we did this, we did this. And that corresponded, you know, to the syllabus. And I remember the syllabus, it was, it, it's obviously static, right? So there was these you know, this is the objective, this is what you're supposed to do on lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. But there was no guidance on what happened if you didn't finish everything in lesson one. Did I have to go back and refly all of lesson one? Did I have to refly just a part of it? What if I did really well with everything on lesson one and they repeated in lesson two? Am I going to waste time doing the same thing again? And so AFTA addresses some of that in that it's it's adaptive. So the idea is, you're right, from the instructor's perspective, it's, it's awesome. You go in, you grade it. But on the back end, AOPA is, you know, through the program, essentially tabulating, okay, where is this student in the overall training program? And the next lesson that comes up, we're going to serve them a little bit differently. We're going to say, okay, well, they've done steep turns really well the past three lessons. Maybe they don't need to focus on steep turns this next lesson. Maybe they can focus more on stalls or something that they're maybe not doing quite as well in or need a little help in. So I think that's a, a, a huge benefit and, and a really exciting development. And the feedback, which is designed to be constructive criticism, like we said, is always available so you'll know how you're doing and what you can do to improve. Now, we do want to point out that it's not free. Uh, APA members can enjoy a free three-month trial of, of the program, but then it's $19.99 per month. Mm -hmm. Now, my, que my question is, and you know, I always come at this from the perspective of the average person, do I pay for that as a student or does the flight school or independent, independent instructor such as yourself 
pay for this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think in many cases it's meant to be at the flight school type level. So it's a, you know, it's a student management system for the flight school. There's a different layer for the, you know, the school manager to be able to monitor all the students at once and that sort of thing. So I, I think we'll find that a lot in a lot of cases the instructor or the school will pay for it. But I know that when they started the soft launch, a lot of individual students came looking for it. So it'll be interesting to see who who really wants, you know, who's interested in it. I think it's an exciting development, and I'm just wondering, you know, how could I integrate that into my instrument procedures that I'm going over with Keith West? And he is so patient with me, but yet I know there are things that I am not doing as good as I could, and there are things that Keith has already patted me on the back and said, Dave T., you got this. So this will be a, an easier way to look at that via the iPad and have a nice record. Nice record. Yeah, so search AFTA on Google or just go to aopa.org slash AFTA. Take a look. I think it's a really cool program. Moving on, the FAA recently released the final rule on the pilot records database. Now, this has been a long time coming. And long-time listeners will remember that this, this has come about because of the Colgan Flight 3407 crash that happened way back in 2009. And there were some questions then about the training of the pilot and the first officer that were involved in that aircraft crash up in New York. So this dives deeper into the background of pilots, specifically pilots who are going to be in commercial operations or commercial operators, folks who have a commercial operation. So let's take a quick dive into what's going on with that. And I'm going to pitch to you because you have a little bit more background on this particular subject. And then we're going to go into the, we can, we can read some stuff from the FAA. Yeah. So it's, I, you know, I think AOPA worked to mitigate, well, we should say this was mandated by Congress, right? So, um, so this was always going to happen. And AOPA's position on this has been basically don't make it onerous on pilots. Don't make it onerous on, on small operators. So as I understand it, there will be a mechanism where if something is wrong in your record, you can there's a way to, to try and get it changed. And like single airplane sort of commercial operators, I, I believe, are going to be exempt. But I will say, if you from just from the pilot standpoint, if you have any inclination that you're going to become a professional pilot in any way, this will have some pretty big implications because it, it's basically where now you could walk into a charter operator, let's say with a King Air, show them your certificate and say, hey, here's my long book, here's my certificate, I'm ready to go. That operator is now going to need to look through your record. And if you failed your instrument check ride three times, they're going to know that. The other thing that I find that's a little disconcerting, Ian, is that this allows, uh, allows entities to check your motor vehicle driving record. Now, I mean, who among us hasn't had a yeah, speeding right. ticket or a car, a car accident at some point in the background? But, you know, we're supposed to report serious things like DUIs on our medicals when we go to, uh, to get that exam. But it, yet again, look at your background. Keep an eye on what your motor vehicle driving record has been because employers, you know, will take a look at that sort of thing. They'll also look for disciplinary action records. Yeah, that's right. And, and records about talking about separation of employment. So these are a few of the things to... Keep in mind when you're going for that, you know, career aviation job. Yeah. I remember talking about this with somebody in an airline training department when it was first uh, proposed. This shocked me, David. So uh, if I'm a trainee, let's say, I've been hired, I'm going through class, 
and I fail my final sim check and then I get retrained and I fail it again and I get retrained and I fail it again. Do they have to fire me? Well, I don't know, Ian. I'm not in charge of that operation, but are, no. are you saying three times and you're out? Yeah, I mean, let's say let's say you failed the sim ride a couple of times. My impression was always, you're gone. I mean, no question about it. It's like, you can't hack it. You're going to be fired. That There's some rule or something that says, you know, you're out. And I was shocked to learn that's not the case. Well, you know, the, the other thing is that some people don't test very well. Yeah, I taught a community college course, you know, a couple of semesters, and, and some people just don't test well. And under pressure, that's a problem. But now one might make a good case, a good point, and say, well, if you're a pilot and a commercial pilot and you, you have this responsibility, you really need to take it seriously and you better perform well under pressure. You better you know? be prepared. Yeah. That's right. I agree. Yeah, you better be prepared. And so, you know, I would say just from day one, if you think you want to fly professionally, it's like make sure you are prepared for those check rides. The proficiency checks as you go up through, all the add-ons that you do, you know, once if you start flying 135, all of those, it's like you've got to be on the ball. That's important. Now, let's let's get a couple of dates out there, the timeline, so so folks have a little time to prepare. The final rule is going to take effect 60 days after it's published in the Federal Register, and then six months after the rule is published, operators must begin reviewing FAA records electronically instead of submitting them basically on paper. Then one year after the rule is published, operators will begin to report and review records to the database. And Ian, how long is it until this is actually in force? Oh my gosh, it's something like, uh, what is it? Three years and 90 days, strangely, to full compliance. Three years plus 90 days. So everyone listening yeah. now, mark your calendars for 2024. <laughs> and uh, the pilot <laughs> records database will be fully operational by then. No, in all seriousness, we should probably begin to get our records together now, take the testing seriously, and, and really you know put your thinking caps on before you go and just take a check ride willy-nilly without studying. Yep, you got it. Hey, moving on, Glass Air, we just want to really quickly mention, they are the makers of the Sportsman, that two-by-two two really cool airplane. They have announced an sort of indefinite pause on their sales and, and manufacturing operations. And folks found out about it, Ian, because it was posted on the Glass Air website and also in some chat rooms. You know, it's a multinational company now. Basically, you know, China bought into Glass Air in 2012. Now, folks who have listened to this program before on you know, the Hangar Talk podcast or have read some of our material might remember that Glass Air participates in the Build-A-Plane Challenge, the Gamma Build-A-Plane Challenge, where students use science, technology, engineering, and math, and they, they, they actually have built airplanes before. And there's that, that fast one-build program that folks have seen the airplanes over at EAA AirVenture and whatnot, too. So the glass airs are out there. The glass stars are out there. And I always thought that the glass star was a really cool backcountry airplane, kind of kind of yeah. slick looking, you know, tail dragger, yeah. decent engine, yeah. a lot of room inside. Very cool stuff. Yeah, they're, they're neat airplanes. So we'll, we'll hope to see them back. And I, it's, it is interesting, both from the fact that they're a kit builder, which, you know, kits are generally doing pretty well. And then also the fact, like you mentioned, that they're, you know, Chinese owners. 
I, I think that was pretty interesting. And, and they did say, obviously, that it's it's related to the, you know, to COVID. So be interesting to see what happens there in the future. Indeed. And speaking of the future, should we should we take a look at the first quarter sales and billings for for aircraft? <laughs> the past. Yeah. Yes. Speaking yeah. of the pa- the recent past, the yeah. recent past. <laughs> um, yeah. So gamma numbers came out. We love to talk about these. A few surprises in here. Overall, I'd say pretty good news. Better news this year than last year, Ian. That you know, last year we were involved in the first parts of the coronavirus pandemic stage, and a lot of the manufacturers really had halted operations or had switched over to making PPE, personal protection equipment, for healthcare workers, and so that affected and impacted you know, the the factory lines as well. But things are picking up this year, and we have some positive news to report. And, you know, uh, we were looking at deliveries of piston airplanes increasing 7.3% this year. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, turboprops up uh, 18.3% this year. Nice. And your, your favorite, tell us about turbine helicopters. They were up. I'll put you on the spot. Do you remember how much? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the percentage, but it's huge. I mean, uh, last year was 39, this year's 92. So nice big jump for them. There you go. So there's some positive trends across the board here. Yeah. And, you know, you are you always take the lead in looking at, la- you know, last year's or last quarter's deliveries versus this year's. Why don't we hit a couple of the manufacturers that we talked to a little bit about? Yeah, so... I, and I even I looked back at 2019, wondering if 2020 maybe was impacted a little bit. It, it didn't, you know, COVID didn't really start to impact until the second quarter, I think. But but we did look at some of this. So Cirrus, which has you know been going gangbusters the past couple of years, they they had a bit of a dip, 77 units in the first quarter of this year compared to 85 last year. And a lot of that was the jet. They did 18 jets last year in the first quarter and only seven in the first quarter of this year. On the flip side of that, we've determined that Diamond Aircraft is actually doing a little bit better this year than in 2020 and and 2019. So they had 45 deliveries overall versus 29 last year and 31 in 2019 in the same quarter. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. So up 50%. That's that's really good. Glad to hear it from them. You know, a few others that are kind of interesting. Piper, they're doing... I would say, okay, they're down big time from their 2019 level, but but holding steady with the 2020 level. So let's see, this year they were 24 in the first quarter, 24 units total. Last year was 25. It is interesting, you know, they're breaking out uh, the Archer and the Pilot 100, which I just think is a, a great idea for them, the Pilot 100. They only sold three of them. That, well, I sold. They, they only built three of them, though, which surprised me a little bit. I thought there'd be more of those. I did too, Ian, and I think maybe things will crank up a little bit further down the road because I know that several of the bigger training firms have pledged to buy those aircraft, including ATP, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before. So let's keep an eye on that. Speaking of keeping an eye on different firms, what about Textron Aviation? We're looking at 75 units build this quarter this year yeah versus 93 last year yeah and and a lot of that is skyhawks they surprised us last year you know skyhawk total there were 48 in the first quarter of last year and how, how many this year 27 this year so that's a little bit down uh, interestingly no bonanzas or barons too yeah which i think was interesting that is sad and that's a high-end aircraft and that does 
affect overall billings when you look at, you know, the, the per number billing. So, yeah. Also, another aircraft manufacturer that keeps, you know, gaining ground is Technum Aircraft. They're sort of, they move along kind of silently, but steadily. And and they did pretty good this year, um, a little yeah, better than really last did. year. Yeah, yeah they, they did. They shipped 46 units this year compared to 42 last year. And I thought maybe some of that was going to be due to the the 2012 that you know the twin engine that they're using with with Cape Air, but it's really not. I mean, they actually did fewer of those. So they what they saw an uptick in were the lighter models, which I think is great. Really cool to see that. That is interesting. And before we leave the the aircraft shipments, I want you to tell us a little bit about something that you found. And uh, I use that as quotes and quotes <laughs> found. Tell us a little bit about Pacific Aerospace. Yeah, well, we, this one we don't really talk about. You know, these gamma reports are always really interesting because you find these like sort of little nuggets. You know, the PAC 750, which is that sort of goofy-looking jump airplane that they always just produce a couple of each year. I was looking at their report, and they have included, they sold one unit, and I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But it's actually the E350 Explorer. Now, that's based on the Expedition aircraft, which was the found aircraft, the found brothers, I think it was, out of Canada. And so they apparently had bought that type certificate, which I didn't even realize. Those are cool. It's like uh, kind of like a 206 competitor. I flew one of those many years ago when I first started at the magazine. So it, it was a neat airplane, a lot of fun. Yeah, and I would actually like to take a jump lesson at some point. You know, I recently wrote a little story about a, a school for jump pilots, and so that aircraft came up. And that's interesting, Ian, that you had the background in found aircraft and found, found that little nugget in the Gamma reports. Listen, let's turn, let's turn our attention real quick to the Robinson Helicopter Company and, and helicopter sales because in the past few reports we've talked about helicopter sales taking a pretty good dip. Yeah, yeah, they've been in a nosedive, really. It's just been awful there. But, good. I mean, you know, bright light there. Uh, so, what, 2020 was 50 uh, out of Robinson in the first quarter? And what was it this year? 60s-something. 56 total units 56, so far, okay. so far. So well, that's up. It is up. It is up, a, you know, a handful, but that's good. It's trending in the right direction, I'd say. Yep. You know, I like flying that R-22 for training purposes, yeah. to be honest yep. And for photography, I, f I feel very secure in the R-44 Raven or the R-66. And in fact, in a few minutes, we'll hear a little bit more about helicopters and their impact when yeah. we talk to, to Paul Seibert. Yeah. That's a great transition, David. Yeah, so, uh, you know, all, overall, I'd say good news from Gamma. And, you know, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed to see what will happen with the rest of the year. So, but yeah, let, let's hear more about helicopters and how Paul uses them over Manhattan. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Paul Seibert, a photographer based in New York, and we're pleased to have you on here. Folks can find you, first of all, on Instagram at Beholding I, B-E-H-O-L-D-I-N-G-E-Y-E, and uh, we have you on Hangar Talk today because you are a photographer and you use general aviation to get photography, and you have some other photography chops. We're going to find out a little bit more about them. So welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. You got it. 
So you came to our attention via our social media manager, Kevin Cortez. You're all our mutual friends. Yep. And Kevin told me about a recent photo excursion that y'all two had. Tell me a little bit about this photo excursion over New York City. But we want to make sure the FAA doesn't get involved, so keep it legal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, everything was above board. Okay, uh, okay. Literally and figuratively. So yeah, Kevin and I have known each other for a number of years, and it's always been in the talks for us to, you know, he's always, when when can we go fly? Let's go fly. I want to go somewhere. Um, and it just so happened that this weekend lined up for both of us. I had recently done a helicopter flight over the city, and it was a high altitude. Ceilings were a little bit low, so it wasn't as high as I wanted to be. So we were somewhere around 5,000. I usually like to be for a high altitude. Uh, I like to be somewhere in the seven, seven to 8,000 foot range. So given the fact that the weather was incredible, visibility was amazing, we decided to go up to 10,500 feet above New York. So that's above the Class B airspace. Totally yes. legit. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. We were actually uh, skeptical whether or not the tower was going to let us, but you know that day must have been not so busy. It was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and they were just kind of like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." So thanks to LaGuardia Tower, it was amazing. Shout out to LaGuardia and uh, and the ATC and the New York area. They've been actually very helpful to me too. Uh, so it was, uh, we just, you know, started our climb north of the city and, uh, literally from some of the more striking vantage points where we are actually further south of the city, uh, closer to the Verrazano Narrows, uh, bridge, but the visibility was so clear that you could almost see up to West Point, how clear that is. So if people don't know the New York metropolitan area, that's 35, 40 miles that you can see in either direction, which around New York is kind of unheard of. So it was, it was a good day for sure. It was a, a good winter's day. And a, a lot of the times that happens after a cold front comes, it sweeps through, kind of cleans the air out. And for photographers, which I am one myself, you know, we love that kind of thing, the, the clear weather and all. Now, now you guys, I mean, you had to really plan this out. This is not the first time you've been up over New York city. In fact, I want to say that that's one of your specialties is aerials over New York City specifically, I've seen a few over Manhattan, and I want you to tell us a little bit about your ideas and your your angles, you know, and kind of what you're thinking about when you're looking to capture these views. Right. So I think from a helicopter's perspective, there's there's the ability and sometimes just the the restrictions of where we can fly that kind of kind of narrow down the the choices that you have, right? can't fly too far east into Queens because that's the approach to LaGuardia. You can't fly too, you know, even further south, Coney Island, JFK's there, you know, and then you're coming from New Jersey. So Newark Tower's involved. So there's a lot going on in the New York City airspace. Also to the west, Teterboro. Teterboro, yep. Yeah, 100%. Right. Yep. Right. So the ideas when I go up in a helicopter are... Um, I usually carry two cameras, which I do kind of in any flight. And during the day, it's a, it's a wide angle lens, something like a 16 to 35 uh, millimeter lens. And then, a and then a, a telephoto zoom lens, like a 70 to 200. And, and for photo geeks, are we talking Sony, Canon, Nikon or what? I am born and bred Canon shooter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm Nikon, but I won't hold it against you. <laughs> and a lot of our good buddies uh, down in the DC area are going to the Sony cameras, the mirrorless specifically. Yep. But yeah. All right. So you got your Canon gear, you got your, uh, got your wide zoom on one camera, you got your 70 to 200 
on the other. Right. And so you're, and that's a normal. And for, for other folks who haven't done this kind of, you know, photography or, or journalism work, that is normal. That's exactly what you're going to carry. And now do you use any filters at all besides like a UV? Do you use anything like a polarizer? No, no. In fact, when we're in the helicopter, we can't have anything that can possibly vibrate off. And so there's nothing. There's nothing. There isn't even a UV filter on there. So it's uh, no lens shade, no UV filter. Now tell people why that's important because I, I understand it. And that, but uh, like I normally would strip even my uh, my ID tag, get everything off of me, wallet in my uh, front pocket. If I had zippered pants, that'd be even better. Right. Or a flight suit, you know. But let folks know what what the deal is. So the deal is is that we're flying, you know, uh, anywhere between a thousand to, like I said before, seven thousand feet over a very populated New York City. We're over the island too, so there's the you know the streets, there's people, and God forbid something comes off and we're in a doors off helicopter. You, you have to make sure that you're mitigating anything and everything beforehand, so that you know you you come away with everything you left with. Safety, Safety first. first. So you don't want to hit anyone on the ground, and also you don't want things flying back into that tail rotor if you're in a helicopter. Absolutely. Exactly. Yep. All right. Cool. So I, I interrupted you. Tell no, me a little bit all, about the equipment. It's all good. So yeah, I think what I have noticed in the differences, uh, photographically speaking, between shooting from a helicopter and from a plane. Is that a helicopter, you are afforded with general ease these kind of what we call look down shots, where the helicopter will bank and get the skids out of the shot, and you have this kind of straight down, vertigo inducing city block shots, which is wonderful for the, the wide angle lenses, as well as being high up and then seeing, you know, as Manhattan is an island, a lot of people kind of forget that. You see the two rivers converging uh, at the southernmost part of the island into New York Harbor. So that's a that's a very popular shot in New York to get. That's a beautiful picture, Paul. I want folks to check out your Instagram for that at Beholding Eye. And uh, I can actually see the bottom of a Cessna wing in one of the pictures. That probably is the flight you did with Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but you're right. That angle, even lower down, like you said, a thousand feet above the deck or, or up to two or three thousand feet up, is a is a striking view because of the convergence of the rivers, the lines that photographers are looking for lines and shapes and patterns and light, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and for me personally, I love that kind of that relationship between the natural world and man-made. So for me, a shot like that kind of drives me crazy. So, and, and, and the higher up I can get, the further I can see the geography interplaying with, with, with where man has, has placed himself along there. Inter interesting. Hey, let me ask you a real quick question about that, that maneuver in the helicopter of chucking the uh, skids out of the way. I mean, how do you communicate that to the pilot? For the most part, when I'm, when I'm flying these days, these are on private flights. So I'll have a, I'll have a headset and we'll talk prior. Usually we'll go over some sort of flight plan. I'd like to be here for two minutes. I'd like to be at this altitude. I'd like to be here. I'd like to see this. And then the style of shot, which obviously the more you shoot, the more the style and stylistically the images that you're producing come into play, right? At first, you're kind of just getting like, I'm in a helicopter and I'm taking pictures of buildings. It's amazing. But then, you know, after, after a time, you start to hone and you start to find what it is that you're actually looking for. So there's a lot of communication between the pilot. Do you have a favorite pilot or do you go with a different pilot each time? I do 
I do go with which pilot is available. A lot of the times it's not up to me. I do request certain pilots with the company that I, I fly with, you know, 99% of the time. So, and if it doesn't work out, then because they're private and because I have a relationship with the company, it's, I go in and there's an understanding that I'm not just a tourist with an iPhone. I have an agenda and this is my agenda. You have an assignment generally. Yes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, the pilots have to understand aviation, mm -hmm. the regulations, and they also have to have that same kind of eye that you have to, tr to sort of at least understand what you're trying to get visually. Right. Yeah. I usually try and leave a little bit of wiggle room in my flight planning so that in case it's a new pilot that I'm not used to flying with and there's kind of someone's unsure or someone's not feeling it, I can either adjust and you know, if it's not like we said before, safety safety comes first, right? So it's uh, so my my requests are always ended. The sentence is always ended. You know, like it's it's totally up to you. It's your aircraft. You know, like whatever you feel safe doing. But this is what I'm hoping to get today. Gotcha. So general aviation really comes through for you on these assignments. This is a key thing. You work hand in hand with a pilot and uh, and in a helicopter. And, and folks that haven't done this or haven't flown in helicopters, they probably need to understand that it's a very dynamic environment. The helicopter pilot, I mean, they have their hands literally and physically full. You know, both hands are, are on controls. I mean, it is a, it's a lockstep situation and everyone has to be on board with the assignment, you know, as the, as the angles are unfolding. Yep, absolutely. And then, you know, I think uh, the the diamond in the rough, the unicorn uh, situation would be finding a pilot who is photography minded as well, right? There's people that are really great at, at they're incredible aviators. And I think that can start to lend itself to being able to take direction quickly and to adapt quickly and to say like, I can't do this here, but I'm going to come around where the wind is working and then I'm going to put you there. Okay. Um, so it's the kind of like that give and take where I was like, I, this is where I need to be. I'm looking straight down at my building. So like put it on its side and let's get a good shot. See, I've been in helicopters a bunch and I used to work for uh, newspapers uh, in Georgia and also wire services and all, but I've never asked a helicopter to to bank hard to the side like that. I mean, I never even thought of asking about that, but you're literally hanging out of this helicopter at this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fully secured, but yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those experiences that it's not for everyone, but I got to tell you, there are a few experiences that compare to it, especially when you're, you're focused on getting the shot. So the, the circumstances that you're in, Compared to the the task at hand, sometimes you don't really think about. I'm actually we're leaning like you know on a 45 to <laughs> 50 degree angle, and we're taking pictures here. Later on, it hits you when you're going, man, why did I do that? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad I'm here to you know talk about. It. Listen, there you you have a couple of really cool angles um, on the Instagram site on the Beholding Eye Instagram site. So I want to ask you about a couple of the photos now. Is this the Chrysler building that we're staring right down at? It, it's uh, one of the more recent photos, and I don't know my New York geography like I should, but it's a really interesting Gothic-looking building, and you're, it literally looks, like, literally looks like you're right over it. Yes, that was, I believe, and I'm just going to kind of try and look along. Yeah, it's a, a nighttime shot you're talking about with a... yeah. 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 Yep. So that was, you know, that was, that was a crop in, but it was, yeah, we were, we were 
circling that, you know, at an angle. But yeah, that that's the Chrysler building. Yep, for sure. Uh, wow, that's an incredible photo. Folks need to check this out online. Now, what about now? I see something that looks like it's very poignant, uh, a little bit further uh, away. But it looks like you're looking back at uh, where the World Trade Centers used to be, and it looks like that there's a shaft of light going into the sky. Was that a nine one one commemorative? anniversary type situation yeah so that actually believe it or not my feet were somewhat on the ground i was welcomed by the empire state building to shoot from a place uh on the building that is not really accessible to the public so i took them up on it and requested to be able to shoot uh the night when the tribute lights were on so beautiful yeah thank you and it very it's very poignant for folks who haven't been to where the world trade uh, center was i mean there's a there's an, an awesome a memorial there now it's just very moving and I, I definitely highly recommend folks take a look at that uh let's di- let's diverge for a minute were you in new york uh working at in the photo industry during that it was 20 years ago right no so at that time i was in college i was living just outside the city in westchester county and i was going to school for music i'm, I'm a musician by by trained by training, I guess. Yeah. Schooling. What, what type of instrument? I, I play, uh, my main instrument is the saxophone. Oh, awesome. But I play, you know, flute and piano and drums and all of that as well. I play, I play bass. We'll have to get together one day. Oh, nice. Yeah. I see the case <laughs> in the background now that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now you have some other beautiful photos. Gosh, I mean, I want, there's a, there's a cool sunset picture. And I don't, I'm not familiar with that geography. It's also on your Instagram site. It's, it's several pictures down, several rows down. But it also looks like it's a you know possibly shot from a from, taken from a helicopter. And you also have some snow pictures of of basically cent, Central Park from the air during the snow. This is a unique angle that a lot of folks probably haven't seen. Tell tell me about either the sunset or the snow pictures. Sure. So, well, why don't we go with the snow just because I don't know exactly which one you're talking about regarding the sunset. I can definitely speak to the snow uh, for sure. Yeah. So a few years back, I took a a high altitude flight after a big snowstorm and I've never been able to do it since. So this year was really, I wanted to make sure that if there was a large amount of snow, like the next day, if flyable, I wanted to get up. So uh, what you're seeing was like I was talking about earlier there was a high altitude flight it wasn't quite as high as i normally like to go just because the ceilings were low um so we're about five thousand feet uh somewhere between five thousand and fifty five hundred and the reason why i think the snow flights really are very impactful is because you really see the grid work of the city because all the roofs are are white right and if you get there early enough after the snow is stopped there's nothing, there's no melting. And it's just really these, it's white and it's black lines and it's, it's beautiful. It's very graphic. It's a gra- very graphically appealing. And you can, uh, you see the grid work, like you said, Paul, this is, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, I see a picture from uh, basically North of central park, maybe looking back towards the South, which is really interesting. I see pictures straight down. This is like the hardest thing to photograph but folks need to really understand that you know you gotta you want to do this without getting the blades without getting the skids in it i mean this is it's a pretty demanding angle yeah it's it can be physically taxing as well just holding yourself in position and 
you know, depending, like I said, you know, everything depends on the conditions, right? What the pilot feels comfortable doing. So thankfully we didn't have a lot of wind that day. It wasn't choppy. And we just, we were able to take some shots where to truly accentuate that, that straight up and down. And it's cold too. If if it's in the wintertime, it's pretty cold as well. I mean, doors off. I think it was, I think, I, I want to say it was something like the wind chill at 5,000 was somewhere around like two degrees that day. So we had like, I had like 20 to 25 pounds of extra clothing on that day, which was, yeah, you're bundled up for sure. Yeah. Well, and you have to be careful that that brings up a really good point. When we uh, do air to air photography, often it's out of the, the back of a Bonanza and we're moving along at 140, 150 miles an hour um, or more. And you've got that wind coming in. We've taken the door off, the baggage door off, and and the rear door off of that Bonanza. And it's super cold. And and also you've got the coldness of the environment. Plus, every thousand feet, you know, you gain an altitude, you're losing about, you know, two or three degrees as well. So you've lost 15 degrees if you're at 5,000 feet, more yep. or less. And and if you're at, you know, 20, 30 degrees on the ground, it's it's... <laughs> bone shakingly cold and you got to be it was cold it was cold yeah we had strategically placed hand warmers everywhere a couple pieces places uh extra extra pairs of gloves and uh so yeah and also the camera batteries don't last as long in the cold as well so that sometimes that's a consideration too yep absolutely 100 percent. yeah that's some beautiful photography now how tell us how you got interested in the visual arts. You went from a music major. Uh, you said you were a music major in school. Yep. A lot of woodwind, a lot of uh, wind instruments, uh, things like that. Now, how do you make that leap to photography and videography? Right. So it just sort of kind of happened, right? As as life goes on, music didn't really, well, let's just say I didn't make the cut in the music uh, industry as there's a certain amount of hustle that I think as a younger man, you don't really appreciate. So it led me to pick up jobs when jobs were needed and pulled me away. Fast forward a few years beyond that, I got married and uh, we went out to a wedding to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I had never been before. And I brought a, we got a little point and click camera and I started taking pictures. I had done photography classes in high school, film film photography and I really enjoyed it but at that point in my life I was obviously focused on music so I just kind of had a rekindling like a like a a a re-emergence of this like oh wow I remember I really love doing this and slowly but surely the camera started coming everywhere with me and then it evolved into you know buying my first camera getting our getting your first job shooting your first wedding doing this and that and to to the point where as Instagram evolved and became prevalent in the world, I started seeing these aerial images of New York and I was intrigued. And I had a friend who was shooting a magazine, an air to air over New York. And he wanted me to take pictures of him taking pictures of us. Okay. Right. So I had never been in a helicopter before and I wasn't sure exactly how, you know, that the old Tum Tum was going to work uh, uh, yeah. in that situation. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, so the pilot, you know, spun up and made a hard 90-degree turn right off the dolly and did a little bit of a gut check, and I was like, I'm okay. Okay, so, cool. And then it was to work. Um, and then after that, it was I, was I was obsessed. A new yeah. career was born. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's amazing. Now, I was, um, uh, before we chatted online, I sent you a couple of emails and, and I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Now, have you done a little bit of drone photography? Because some of your images from out west look like that angle, like it could have been with a drone or it could have been just a high angle. Yep. No. So I, I did have a, I had a drone with me. I went out West this summer, droned in, you know, drone safe places, uh-huh. um, <laughs> no national parks or anything like that. But yeah, definitely. I had a drone. I actually discovered that there was an issue with it. So I had to return it. So now I don't have a drone anymore. Um, but well, to, be, be, con- to be, be continued before you returned it. I mean, there are some dramatic photos that you've taken uh, from that. Now that is a whole different way of looking at things. And, you know, as, as consumers of uh, TV shows and movies, a lot of us don't realize that there's a lot more now that's produced with drones um, than before. And before we used to have helicopter shots or we had platform pull away shots that were more on, on, you know, real platforms, uh, metal platforms, but it's more freestyle drone now and that's a whole different way of looking at things and you're piloting at the same time. So this is a confusing thing to do sometimes. Yeah, it's I think probably the scariest part is if you lose track of where you are because you're consumed with setting up a shot. Right. So it's kind of you have to be your faculties have to be on point all the time. But I will say that piloting a drone, you know, this was a, you know, a Mavic 2. It wasn't a, a large drone or anything like that that would require two people. Um, but the freedom that you have when you're piloting the drone and capturing images and video from a drone is that there isn't that lag time between communicating to the pilot and myself, right? Where I'm like, hey, you know, we're coming up on this thing. I need you to, you know, bank and keep it, blah, blah, blah. I could just do that my own. I could see the shot unfolding while you're coming into where you envision the frame to be. So it's, it's, it's both freeing, but it's also, it's all on you at that point. Right. So it's a, it's, it's an interesting experience and it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun for sure. It is. And you definitely have to have a sort of a split personality with that. You have to be um, a safe pilot first, you know, adhere to the regs and the rules, things like that. But also you have to have the same eye that you were talking about. We were, we were just chatting about that with a helicopter pilot. You have to have that same kind of a look. And a lot of that, you have to pre-plan where you're going to be, where the sun's going to be, the angle, what the lens is going to do, you know, with the, you know, different types of distortion, wide angle distortion, things like that, the leading lines and and that kind of thing. Um, So there's a lot that comes into it. It's not just people, you know, might not understand that you don't just lift off and there you are, you know? Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, like, for instance, I'm planning a shoot for this this Friday that I'm trying to reproduce a shot I took three or four years ago by calculating where the sun is going to be, the angle of the sun, where it's going to be shining on. So there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot riding on this one, um, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, t- if it works out like I will be I'll be a happy, happy camper for sure. Yeah. So if there's a lot of planning of angle of the sun and whether or not, you know, like sometimes too many, too many clouds are, are, it's, it's, it's not what I'm looking for. So I need to find a clear day or at least have a clear part of the horizon where the light can come through and hit this one landmark in a certain way that kind of isolates it on its own. So there's a lot of planning. So I was saying that if it does go through, I'd be, I'll be a happy camper. 
I'm sure it'll come out well. I, I, I got faith in you, Paul. Now, do you use any other tools? Like are there are some apps. Uh, that I believe I have one called Sun Surveyor that sometimes helps out. Do you use anything like that to kind of help you out or do research online or just sort of what, what makes that happen for you? Right. So f- first and foremost, yeah, there, we have those we have those tools uh, at our beck and call the, the photo pills. I use a, an app called the Photographer's Ephemeris which shows me at any point in the day, this is going to be the angle of the sun. This is where it's going to be. I was not a math major or a geometry major in high school (laughs) uh, or college. So I do often rely on the goodwill of some of my more uh, geometry minded people to break down the angles for me. Is this going to be okay? Is this going to be, I'm thinking it's going to be okay. It's only like one degree of difference in the altitude and, you know, so. Well, we all need good mentors. So that's, there you go. That's it, you know, and, and, and a large part of, of, of all of this, all of this being my, my photography. And I think a, a lot of creators in the world now is, is the, the importance of community and having people around you and having a network. And that's more, we're more able to do that and grow quickly if we should, so choose this day and age, I think. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, that's awesome. Hey, um, I'm going to let people know about your, your other professional site, your photography site, if that's okay, they could, they could find you at, uh, Paul Seibert photography.com P A U L S E I B E R T photography.com and see some of your, of your amazing wedding work and some events that you've covered as well as the landscapes that we're talking to you about today. Tell me a little bit about some pictures other than aerials that really grabbed your attention. Do you have a favorite assignment, for instance? Uh, yeah. And it, well, I guess that could be an aerial assignment as well, but right. you, certainly, you certainly have captured some awesome images of folks, you know, r- routine people, and I see shadows and I see shapes and I see other landscapes and I see product photography and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, I would say first and foremost that I'm a, I would consider myself, even for a New Yorker, a people person. I do enjoy being around people. So weddings were a way as an up and comer to, to make decent money. Also, something that I speak about a lot anytime I'm speaking about my development of aerial photography, if it weren't for weddings and having to adapt at the drop of a hat, go indoors, go outdoors, flashlighting this, everything is changing throughout the period of a day. If I didn't have that expertise to be able to manually manipulate my camera, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing in a helicopter, right? So it just became this symbiotic relationship that had a payoff in something that I feel like was a little bit more socially exciting, all right, if that's if that's a thing. But I, I really, I love working with people. I love my ideas are usually based around people's energy, how they move. I'm not like a, a classic portrait photographer. I'd rather capture you while in between the shots and realize that's that's what we're looking for. And I'll say, okay, stop right there and then relax your shoulders. Okay, nice. Now look at me. Nice little smile, you know, kind of coax little things out of them. But it's it's the in-between moments where the true essence of a person will come out, right? You're looking for those intimate moments, basically. You're you're looking for those intimate moments that also are visually appealing at the same time. Absolutely, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, your port. You have a really cool portrait gallery. I really enjoy that. That's uh, folks should take a look at that at 
at paulsybertphotography.com if they get a chance. Thank you, thank you, yeah. Um, it's really, really nice. And families and kids, you've got some other energy developing with that as well. Yep. And uh, I know that that could be hard to do. Uh, so can animals. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> they bring their, their own nuances into the, into, the, into the mold. Thinking back on everything, man, is there a, a favorite assignment or is it going to be the one that you're planning right now with that shaft of light and that secret location that you're telling us about? Well, uh, yeah, I would say uh, something that in, that incorporated both event photography and landscape photography and aerial photography all in one was that few years back, the Statue of Liberty was building a new museum on Liberty Island where the old housing for the, for the uh, rangers and wardens of the island were. So I was asked to go up and snap some pictures of the construction in progress, which then turned into me going to the actual museum while it was being built and taking it from different aspects and places on the island. And then most of that was pro bono work. So finally, they decided they were going to hire me for something. And they had this huge opening gala with, you know, too many famous people to 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 mention, but it was kind of like I you're bumping into someone who you know you were like oh I know you but you have no idea who I am I'm just the guy who just banged into <laughs> um, movers and shakers right, yeah exactly and so we did the the opening gala for the museum and in tandem with that was a publication that a publishing company was putting out a book a new book outlining everything uh, about the Statue of Liberty and the new museum it was I guess put together by Diane von Furstenberg. So I, I donated some images to that, which created a relationship with a publisher, which now I'm working on my first solo publication with that publisher to produce a New York aerial image book. So, Oh man, we got the scoop yeah, on that. Yep. Whoa, here we go. Coming well, to that, a bookstore near you in April, 2022. That is fantastic, Paul. Well, congratulations on Thank that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So, yeah, so you make you make your own contacts in this world, and you know, yeah, as you uh, as you meet as you meet people and move along, you know, one assignment leads to the next, and it sounds like doing that Statue of Liberty work, which pro bono for free, yep, uh, led to something a little bit bigger, a little bit greater. You've got some really interesting sunset pictures of the Statue of Liberty as well, some from the ground, some from the air. It's a uh, pretty spectacular. And uh, that, of course, that's, uh, you know, one of our, our greatest landmarks here in the U.S., especially on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's definitely one of my uh, favorite targets. I feel like every time I'm up in a helicopter, I try and get a more and more crisp and clean and detailed shot of her so that people can say, like, oh, I never knew that she had curly hair, like, right above her ear, you know, like. That is wild. People need to, t they need to check out, um, I think some of this is on your Instagram site, so oh, they yeah, can actually sure. access it. Yeah. And then some is on your personal, um, on your personal photography website as well. Uh, very interesting detailed shots of the Statue of Liberty and, uh, uh, God, a lot of, just a lot of details. And um, you do actually have a, quite a following on Instagram. We're going to wrap up in a minute, but now you got a couple hundred thousand people that follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did you build that following? Oh man, that is, that is always the question. Right. And I think really, honestly, I used Instagram from the beginning as just a place for me to document my my growth and my activities in photography. 
I'm a little bit older than the crowd that would be concerned numbers and being an influencer type of person. So for me, it was really just kind of a, a living history. And as I progressed and as I as I got more comfortable being on there, then I started to reach out and create contacts and create a network of friends and mutual creators who are doing things all over the place that inspire me. It was a great way for me to just reach out and to, and to learn. Just being around another person who is creating with just a little bit of a different perspective, you can grow if you so choose, you know, leaps and bounds in a short amount of time. The following came just because I wanted to be genuine. I was genuinely thankful and surprised when anybody was following along and, and offering up uh, kind words of, of praise and encouragement. So I try to be as engaging as I can be, as helpful as I can be, as now I've been a photographer for over a decade. I try now to give back and help educate people to some of the things that I did wrong on the way up. So it's a, it's a byproduct of the work, but it's a labor of love for sure. It's all about giving back. And that's a really interesting thing to do. And it's a great way to live your life and to help other folks as well. Paul, let me ask you, can we, can people who are listening to this find and buy any of your work? Now would be the time to lay it on us. Yeah, sure. My website, paulcybertphotography.com. I am reachable. If there's any image that you can't find on my website, I would say 90% of my images are up for sale, so you can always reach out to me uh, via direct message. Um, I also have a Facebook page. If Facebook is more your thing rather than Instagram, Paul Cyber Photography on Facebook, please send me a note. I'm happy to set you up and take care of you. Yeah, so that's that's the way to do it. And in 2022, stand by for like a coffee table book of New York Ariel, something like that? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, coffee table tourism type of book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all, all aerials of, of New York City. Do you have a working title or is that still under wraps? Uh, working title is New York from the air. So it's uh, really kind of, it, it's, it hits Self the right on the head. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's no surprises when you open up the book. <laughs> Paul, you've been a great guest here for hangar talk it's so awesome to make contact with you and chat a little bit about your photography especially about your images from new york and and looking at the city from the sky like you've done for 10 years we appreciate your time and expertise also your mentorship and the way that you let folks know they could reach out to you either via instagram beholding i on instagram or paul s-e-i-b-e-r-t photography.com uh, Paul Seibert, thank you for joining us today, and I hope our paths will cross in person one day soon. Yes, that would be great. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. All right, David, interesting guy. I, I just, I always find it fascinating that people, especially photographers who are hanging out the side of these things, the trust that they place in, in pilots to be able to get their job done. It's really cool. You're right about that because when you're a photographer and you're looking through that lens, as Paul told us, really, you're really concentrating on the, the fleeting light at the moment, the converging or diverging lines, and you're leaving all the flying to the pilot. You absolutely don't know, you know, if they're turning left or right. You know, you're just you're you're asking them to circle, 
or do different maneuver maneuvers, but you don't really see what's ahead of you. So you do have a lot of faith in the pilot. That's why he leans on general aviation to get the job done. And I got to say, listeners, look in your mailbox for that July pilot. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, he's got a great portfolio in that. It's very cool stuff. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk and wherever you can get your Apple or Google podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.